And for me, that was the danger, because in my mind I would tell myself, well, I didn't get into trouble last time. But what I had to start looking at was, but every time there's trouble, whatever form of that trouble took place in, I had been drinking or using. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Welcome to another episode of Stigmatized. Today I have the distinct honor of having Jason Thompson here with me. And Jason is a great advocate for people in the mental health and addiction community. Also very active with service positions and 12-step work. You're a counselor and coordinate some other programs at the Leonard Center of Hope in Mason, Ohio. And most important, you're a wonderful guy and have helped me in my recovery beyond measure. So I just appreciate you being here. Thank you, Trevor. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. So we met in 2015 when I was in rehab at the Leonard Center of Hope. Uh, and you were running a group, I'll never forget it, and I just instantly connected with you. And I I think I ran up to you after I said, you know, can I work with you and I leave? And, and so anyway, it's a blessing that we cross paths, and I can't tell you how much of a role you played in my recovery, and I truly would not be where I am without you. So from the bottom of my heart, I just want to thank you for that. You're too kind. <laughs> thank, thank you. Uh, so just right off the bat, I'd love for you to share your journey with me and the listeners, if you would be so kind. Right, well, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. I mean, my as unique as I thought I was, my story is probably not all that unique from, from everybody else's kind of same story, different name. And I know I just have to look for the similarities and not the differences because when I would come in, I, I would I would dissect the people and, and identify the differences immediately. And I would compare myself right out of the room. And so I, I try now to identify and not compare, you know, because when I compare, I'm, I'm heading for trouble because I'm, I'm going to look for just the differences. And so like, you know, part of my story is, um, you know, I'm 41 years old. Uh, I've been sober for 16 years, uh, you know, and for me, that means I don't, you know, smoke weed, I don't drink, I don't, you know, uh, I'm not on anything I shouldn't be taking that that could lead me to a relapse, and, and, and that's for me. Um, I know everybody has different journeys, but that that's that's mine in particular, and since we're talking about it, then that's where I'll go with, right? So I, I was, I always felt different you know, as a kid, I always felt like instead of being in a room and it being us, it was me and them. And so there, there was that, um, that just feeling different was, was probably an anxious kid and, uh, all that stuff. And so when I got up to the first time I, I took a, a drink or a drug, it was a drink and it was, it was warm old mill light. And we stole it from a farmer. And um, so I committed a theft and alcohol consumption on my first time <laughs> drinking. And that was consistent, too, there for a while. And How um, old? I was probably 12, 13, 6th grade. And so curiosity killed the cat. And so it, uh, it, it didn't kill me, but it about did several times. And so, you know, I always had this desire to feel different. But what I did when I drank alcohol, it, it quieted the world down. I didn't even know it was loud. I just knew something was different, and at least that was my perception. And uh, it, it quieted the world down for me. 
and I liked it immediately. I hated the taste, but I loved the effect of that alcohol had. And so I started drinking more and more and um, had a lot of alcoholic behavior. Now I see it, you know, very early on. And so started smoking weed at probably 16 years old. And I'll try not to dwell too much on that. I mean, I think a lot of us are pretty well versed in that. We know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, so started doing that. And, you know, my grades were never, you know, great. And, and you had alcohol and drugs into the equation. They went from bad to worse. And, and with me, it was always, I always got the Jason's effort doesn't often meet his ability. <laughs> so like, one star. Yeah, I, I always gave the one star effort, you know, and, 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 and thought and expected to get five, expected five star results with a one star effort. And, and I just didn't realize the world didn't work like that. You know, that the harder I worked, the luckier that I got. And, um, you know, I thought it would just come to me. And if it wasn't, if it didn't come natural, I just didn't really want to. And that's why in school, I always loved history because I just had to remember. I didn't have to think too much, figure stuff out. I could, I have a pretty decent memory. So I could just selective memory, some will say. And yeah. uh, so I, I would just remember and, and that was okay. And um, so I start drinking, start using and start smoking weed. And um, I get very preoccupied with drugs and alcohol, you know, and for me, that means even when I'm not drinking or using, I'm thinking about drinking or using, I'm thinking about the weekend. So on a Monday and in, in history or, or, or where, whatever class I was in, I was already to Friday in my head. I was thinking of what are we going to do Friday? And man, last weekend was pretty cool. You know, that was pretty fun. Finally, I had felt like, um, kind of, I had arrived, like there was a manual for life I didn't get, but I found it in in the bottle. And so obviously I was very, that was a big incentive to keep using, you know, I got that wow effect from alcohol. And, um, so I, you know, I kept drinking, kept, kept using, um, played sports. Um, part of that effort, you know, I got cut from my freshman basketball team, and uh, I, I expected to be, you know, uh, a star basketball player with with zero practice. Mm-hmm. And um, so when, when I got cut from there, that was a good resentment. You know, I, I could work on that resentment for a while. Um, played football and, um, you know, smoked weed during the season, but didn't really drink a lot. And, uh, you know, would, would go to school high, would smoke weed in the morning and and all that stuff. And, and would start to get into some other stuff, would take some pills. Um, was partying and having a lot of fun. And it, it was very fun back then. It worked for a while. Uh, and obviously it did because when it started, when the relationship with it changed and it quit doing things for me and began to do things to me, in my mind, my, my delusional mind, I would hold on to the early days of the wow effect, what got me, what sold me on it in the beginning. And I would try to recapture those days of the past that, uh, you know, some new miracle of control was going to enable me to, to drink and get high uh, with no consequence. And, and and there were times I drank and got high with no consequence. I mean, I think it's almost impossible to have consequences every time I drink or use, you know, to, to have these major consequences. And for me, that was the danger because in my mind, I would tell myself, I didn't get into trouble last time, or or I was okay last time, and I may have been. But what I had to start looking at was, but every time there's trouble, whatever form of that trouble took place in, I had been drinking or using. I was was always trying to control B, you know, the the effect instead of the cause. And then when I started to control the cause, that if, if I don't do A, I cannot get B. 
I would always look at B and still want to do A, and, and it would follow suit very, very quickly for me. So I, I get into some other drugs, um, start doing some cocaine. Um, a friend of mine lost his mom, and I started staying at his house. And his dad was very busy, worked a lot, and was never home. So that was kind of the party spot. And so we would stay there, and uh, his dad would throw money at him a lot because I guess he just felt guilty for not being home and kind of starting a new life without him. And um, he had an older brother that was, you know, had moved on, and there was a decade or so in between them. So in high school, that was the spot to be at. And so we we drank and we got high. Um, I'd go to school drinking, uh, getting ready to go to college. And I was always very immature. You know, I, I was I was very sensitive. Um, always always thought everything was about me and uh you know was very immature really needed to grow up you know really and uh, that's what recovery has done for me it's allowed me to really grow up mm-hmm. and, and instead of being a part from uh not a part of it, it's got me to be a, a part from to a part of i guess is what i'm trying to say and um so graduate high school and um my drinking and using is progressing at this time and high school underage possession of alcohol and um, start to, uh, I go to college, but I stick close to home. I go to a branch of a college. So I could basically use, I, I toured a school um, in Pennsylvania to uh, to look at for football. And um, I knew when I went on that, that, there's no way I'm going here. A, I'll never get to play. And B, um, I don't know anybody up here. It's in the mountains and Pennsylvania. And it's like, you know, I already have all my building connections and everybody I know where I'm at. And, uh, and it was drug connections at that time is, is what I'm referring to. And so I start running around with some different people. You know, my, my peer group started to change. Um, I started driving for, for these guys that were selling drugs. And, uh, so they would throw me, you know, little stuff here and there. And, uh, you know, I felt a part of and, you know, whatever. Bad breath beats no breath at times, right? And, and that's kind of how I looked at it. And um, went to school and and dropped out after a couple quarters. I mean, I, I, thought, I thought I was there a couple years, but that drug haze, you know, it was a couple quarters is what it was. And I saw that when I, when I had to pay back the money that I borrowed to go there, and um, which was a good thing. But so I, I get up and um, I start using some other drugs more often. And by 19, uh, I'll fast forward, uh, 19, I was on heroin. I was snorting heroin at 19. I guess to back up at, at 16, a buddy hurt his knee in football and got prescribed Percocet. And I mean, this should have been a red flag, you know, and, and I took some and I couldn't differ. And it says on the side of the bottle, do not mix with alcohol. So the first thing we did was find some wino that, you know, to buy us some beer. And, uh, we mixed it with alcohol and took some, and this should have been a red flag. I couldn't differentiate the high. Was I really high from the alcohol or did these pills work? So the very next day, you know, I'm there knocking on his door. Can I have a couple more? And I take a couple more. I turn, it activates the vomit center of my brain. I turn white as a ghost. I itch and I drive around Wayne National Forest like I just drank 18 beers and I didn't have to do all the work. It hit me in about eight minutes because I chewed up the pills because I'm an addict and I can't <laughs> wait for him to actually kick in yeah, like most people. Yeah, so not I, fast enough. It wasn't fast enough. Imagine that. So um, fell in love with opiates right there. I had a bad experience with LSD. Like every time I took LSD, I had a bad experience. Uh, first time I about jumped out of a second story window. Um, I, I would get mm. lost in these trips and it was just horrible. And I told a guy one time when I was going to 
early in the recovery. I said, you know, I didn't really like LSD. I only did it about 20 times. I, I tried it about 20 times. He started laughing. I said, no, I'm being serious. And he said, no, that's why I'm laughing. It's because in your mind, I know you're being serious. And, and I said, well, I, I had to make sure it didn't work. I had to make sure I didn't like it. And he said, you know, that's really funny. I was at the first uh, meeting you ever went to. And you said, this sucks and you'll never be back. And it proved another thing to me. I can be very open-minded about things I want to be open-minded about. And things I don't want to be open-minded about, I just won't be as open-minded about until maybe I don't have any other options but to be open-minded right. about certain things. Stubborn and selfish. Absolutely. The scorecard had to read zero. Right. And so then go to um, get up to... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with this, this guy that just got out of prison and he was a drug dealer. And, um, you know, I, I was, uh, glued to his hip. I mean, I just would not, I, the scene was just, you know, it was a lot of drugs and stuff like that. And I was real attracted to that at the time. And so my use really progressed. I started doing more and more, got into some more trouble. Um, I won't go into great detail, but I was one night, um, we were on crack cocaine and taking Xanax and ran out of the crack cocaine and this guy went to, I didn't call it this at the time, but um, a guy went to, to rob some drug dealer and shot, you know, he didn't hit him, fortunately, but he fired a couple shots at him. And uh, yeah, it's just a miracle that he didn't hit him. And, uh, you know, I, I can remember going to jail that night and uh, for possession. And honestly, I don't know if that was my crack cocaine in the car or not, because I didn't see it. And I really don't think... I, they may not have even found it at that time. For I, I don't know. I didn't see it. Here's how I came to terms with it. If I found it and the police didn't find it, that was my crack cocaine in the car that night because I sure wasn't giving it back. And so for me, um, it all comes out in the wash. And it seems like for all the things I got away with, uh, it, eventually I had to pay the price in, in some form. So I get into some trouble with that, with the crack cocaine. Um and that could have been real bad, and I got a possession charge. And what was really cool was I just had it expunged uh, in May. And the same judge that sentenced me in 98, I had my probation revoked in 99. Imagine that. And then he expunged it uh, about a month ago. He just took it off the record, and, and huh. that was pretty cool. And you know, and my, my alcoholic ego, I'm sitting in court thinking – you know, I'm bald now. This guy doesn't look like he's aged a day. And he was older than me back then. I had hair last time I was here in this courtroom. And, you know, and, and it's funny the things we, you know, that I pick up on when, when, I, when I should be thinking of other things. Yeah. You know, it, come, it seems to come back to thinking about myself quite a bit. Oh, man. <laughs> right. So, um, but, but I know many of the listeners may be able to identify with that one. Um, so, anyway, um, you know, I start snorting heroin at 19 and uh, started to inject it at 20. And, you know, it just really went from bad to worse from that moment on. And I mean, I'll, I'll spare you, you know, the high speed chases, the, um, it was in a couple of those, the, the run-ins with the, I wasn't the driver, but nonetheless, a high speed chase is a high speed chase. Right. And, um, you know, all, all the, all the trouble and then all the stuff that I didn't get in trouble for all the stuff that I could have gotten in trouble for, you know, when people say life's not fair, I mean, for me, thank God that it wasn't, you know, cause I certainly, I may not be sitting here right now talking about this if we kept score and went tit for tat with everything um i contracted hepatitis c when i was uh, probably um uh, probably 20 and i was i was fortunate with that one too because mine never went mine never really went anywhere um i i got sober the first time at 23 stayed sober almost two years 
went back out at 25 and came back in at 25. Um, I had to make sure it didn't work one last time. And uh, newsflash, it didn't work one last time. And so that today I'm not delusional about that. And the first way my delusions got challenged, I remember I was in rehab and I, I, I walked in. And there was a guy that's dead now that uh, we talked about at lunch that died from the disease, uh, was the coordinator of a drug court and ran a treatment program. And I remember I walked in. He said, how are you doing? I didn't know it was a trick question. I said, really good. And he said, well, you might be in the wrong spot because this isn't for people doing really good. And, And it hit me that like, what do I consider good? You know, and by definition, a delusion is a false belief despite evidence to the contrary. I wasn't looking at the evidence of the contrary. My defense mechanisms were kicking in. And I was rationalizing, justifying. I, ha- I had a reason and an excuse and an alibi for everything. And so in treatment, I really had to look at that evidence to the contrary. I had to check the record. And I had to, I had to take a real good look at what alcohol and drugs started to do to me, not what all they used to do years ago for me, because that those days were long gone. And that's why, you know, I, I say a drug is a drug is a drug, whether, you know, China white heroin or, or Miller light beer, I, I'm using it for the same kind of escape. Mm-hmm. And, and so therefore, it, it's not for me as important on what I use. It's that I use something because if I don't fix that in the core of me, that I can't experience the legitimate pains or or pleasures of life, I will have a, a desire to alter my mental state and my mind and my mood. And then the the drug just doesn't matter. Hell, in recovery, it's hard enough not to do that with uh, shopping or, or you know, or, or vi- whatever it may be. Food, food. We, we talked or, about know, food today. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, got got into some more trouble um, and t- tried some geographical cures. And uh, the problem with those is I would take the problem with me every time. Um, I, I wish every state had a sign that as you enter it, you know, Kentucky, Ohio, or this one doesn't work either. You know, it's right. like, you know, the change has to come from within. And I was trying to change without, not within. And then the funny part is, is once I changed from within, I started seeing the change from without just kind of took place because my perception of the, the things without started to change. I started to accept more. And so anyway, getting to, getting to some more trouble, go to, go to some rehabs, and um, in 98, I, I would make appearances at detoxes and IOPs, couldn't really do that, and um, would go to, um, I remember I, I was at this one rehab in in Columbus, and you know, I was there, and I, I really wasn't, I, I still had a plan. I, I wanted to quit doing heroin and crack and, and maybe still smoke weed and drink, and that wasn't recommended in there, but somebody in there said something. They said, well, hell, he just turned 21. He has a lot of partying left in him. That's one thing I can remember about that rehab. Now, this was a heroin addict that said that. At the t- this was not mm-hmm. staff that said that, right? I don't know what the staff said, but whatever that that lady said, I latched on to because yeah. I thought, you know, she's smart. They, they ought to give this woman a job. I've been telling the psychiatrist this, you know. I wish, you, you know, they'd all subscribe to this. And when I left that place, you know, I stayed sober probably four or five miles after I left there, got a six-pack, and then was off to the races, and that progression kicked in, and I had no idea. I just had no idea how did I get here again. I couldn't tell that it, it, it wasn't the, the caboose I had to worry about. It was that engine. It was that first one. And if I stay away from that first one, I don't have to worry about the fourth, the fifth. And there's always going to be the fourth, the fifth, the, the 100th, because there's never enough to satisfy what's inside me. There's never enough. I, I have, um, I, I have a, an allergy to it, and 
I just will want more and more. And I don't know when that is. That may not be the first time. For me, it was. That, that may not be, that may be six months, but per my history, when I start to alter my mind and mood, I'm going to want to do it more and more. And as one, a successful first time, for me, guarantees there's a second attempt. Mm-hmm. A successful second attempt will guarantee a third. Per my history, at some point, the wheels fall off of that. And so that today, I'm not in any kind of delusion about that. I look at the evidence of the contrary. I don't have that false belief today. So um, anyway, um, you know, get the hepatitis C. It doesn't really go anywhere. Go to treatment. Stay sober about two years. And, uh, you know, but I start to decay. Probably I'm, I'm decaying. I'm sitting in 12-step meetings, and I'm starting to decay from the inside out. Because typically when this happens, it's not I decay from the outside in. I, I decay from the inside out. And the bad part is pride and ego step up, and I don't want no, anybody to know I'm struggling. And I'm trying to look good in 12-step recovery. And as I was told, trying to look good in 12-step recovery may kill me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have to be able to tell people what's going on with me. So I'm decaying from the inside. I'm, I'm kind of suffering in silence. Um, and uh, so... I get very complacent, and, and eventually I pick back up. And for me, it wasn't uh, very long at all. I mean, it was uh, instantaneous. I was back to where I left off. All that stuff, I, I worked in the addictions field before that, resigned right before that. But um, about my first sobriety date was in 2001, and uh, it was about 20, 22 months, and uh, was out for about four months, three and a half, four months, and then came back. And I remember February the, the 16th of 2003. That's my sobriety date now. And... Um, I remember the day before that, it was February the 15th of 03. It was a Saturday and some guy I was with had died. I wasn't with him when he died, but uh, he, he had overdosed. Um, I, I scraped a bit of a spoon. There's a little bit of Oxycontin in it. Uh, and, and there, it was basically wax. I mean, I had drawn up probably four or five shots out of it, but I'm an addict and there might be 1% of something in this right now to where it'll change the way I feel in reality. It was probably water and wax is what I shot up. So that was Saturday the 15th. I called this guy. Uh, Ed H. And uh, I, I talked to Ed H. in uh, in Portsmouth, Ohio. And uh, Ed told me, he said, what happened last time you tried to get sober, like around Christmas? Did you go to a meeting every day? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, that's funny. You know, you were supposed to meet me at the United Group in Portsmouth on Christmas night. You didn't show. And I said, oh, well, hell, I was unwrapping presents at my in-laws. And, and, you know, he said, that sounds good, but a desperate man wouldn't have let wild horses keep him from a meeting that night. I heard him. I was listening. I had that gift of desperation on that Saturday, the 15th. And he said, I guarantee you, if you go to a meeting every time the doors are open for one from now until next Sunday, you'll have a, you'll have a week's sobriety. And my jaw dropped. I thought a week. I couldn't imagine. It would have been a mercy kill if somebody would have shot me right there on the spot. I mean, literally. And um, so I didn't go to treatment. I didn't go to detox. I did 45 days in treatment prior to that. Uh, to how I got sober the first time was in jail a couple months before the uh, the treatment, so it was kind of long term um, abstinence anyway. And then did aftercare and IOP for a year. So I think if I wouldn't have had that good foundation, I wouldn't have came back as quick because I knew there the delusion was dead. There wasn't enough drugs and alcohol to change the way I feel. I knew that. And then what I use as a solution instantly became a problem. And so now I've got to not only arrest that problem, but then deal with the problems there that's begin with, that w- why, why I picked back up. You know, I got very restless, irritable, and discontent. Um, I never had what I wanted, wanted what I never had. And whenever I got it, whatever it was, I just lost interest. I didn't want it anymore. And if that was a relationship and a toy or whatever it was, that's kind of what it was uh, for me throughout my life. And so um, 
go go to treatment, get out, do the relapse. I call Ed, and I, I start going to meetings again. And before I know it, and, and I'm making it sound easy, but it wasn't. It was an absolute struggle, and I, and I don't want to forget that. But the fact of the matter is I cannot recall that with sufficient force, how I felt exactly. I know I went through it. I know it sucked. But I can't recall the exact pain and suffering. I forget what I should remember, and I remember what I should forget. That's a problem with my alcoholic mind. And, and so um, I, I, I know I certainly don't want to go through it again, uh, you know, a day at a time. Um, but it's, I look at it as like losing somebody that passes away. It, it hurts really, really bad at first. But then over time, it starts to kind of – it starts to dissipate a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's how my last drink or drug – uh, can happen to me. And that's why I'm a big believer in whatever gets me sober won't necessarily keep me sober. I can get sober off the law, the liver, the lover, fear. I can get sober on all kinds of stuff. I likely won't stay sober long-term because the liver may heal itself. Mine did. The law, if I stay sober and do what I need to do, that's a non-issue, minus some parking, speeding tickets. Mm-hmm. A- and, uh, you know, the lover, if, if that one goes, there'll be another one, you know, somewhere down the line. And so get sober and um, I've been sober for 16 years. I've been sober longer than I ever used. So the bulk of my story is in recovery. And I could sit here and go on and on about the good stuff that's happened to me in recovery. And um, and I would leave so much stuff out. There's right. no doubt in my mind. The hepatitis C went away. Um, I took treatment for it. And it uh, mine never really went anywhere. I had three biopsies, two ultrasounds, saw a doctor every year. And um, finally took the treatment, and um, it's it's just gone. And from my experience in recovery, as long as I focus on the details and quit trying to – I was always such a manipulating the outcome type of guy. I wanted to control and manipulate the outcome in my benefit, and it never worked out well. As long as I do the details and I I just need to do the next thing under my nose, the outcome has always worked out fine. You know, whether it's that expungement, whether it's the hepatitis C, whether it was the job, uh, whatever. I got to go back to school, um, got to clean up that from, you know, being in recovery, went, went back to school um, and employable. A father was married, divorced in recovery, um, was separated in 09, didn't really want that and uh, got got back together. And uh, that, that qualifies me as an addict right there because I'm uh, got separated and, and got right back into the relationship. And if that doesn't qualify me as being willing to jump right back into the frying pan I just got out of, uh, I don't know what what does. Mm-hmm. Just doing it a little something different, and uh, and then finally got divorced. And um, you know, and, and that's been you know, uh, it, it's it's been what it's been. It's it's been okay. There, it's not been. Uh, life is really not a struggle today. And, and I know that if I'm struggling with something, what I'm, uh, that's probably something I'm not surrendering, you know, because anytime I, I, for me, I hear the word struggle, I think, is that a lack of surrender? What, what am I still holding on to? It could be old ideas, old, old thoughts, old behaviors, you know, whatever that could be. But what, what am I still holding on to trying to kind of change the outcome, control the narrative? And I, I just need to focus on those details. So, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people that was in my early recovery are dead. Um, I couldn't tell you the, the, the count for that. And I don't say that to scare because you can't scare anybody uh, to get sober. I, I know I couldn't be because I'm different. Mm-hmm. I'm different. I right. know what I'm doing. Right? <laughs> you know, yeah. They're sloppy. Yeah. You know, I know what I'm doing. And uh, it's just a, an absolute miracle that that didn't happen to me. But I try to stay active in, in my recovery today. Um, 
I'll, I'll go to a meeting tonight. I was, went to a convention over the weekend in early June that uh, a lot of people in, in, in Ohio go to and, and from all over for that matter. Uh, yeah, have a good time. You know, if, uh, you know, I, I remember in, in early recovery, somebody, I said to somebody, I was bored. And he said, you know what that means, don't you? And I said, what's, I thought he was going to give me the answer. And he, and he said, it means you're boring. <laughs> and, and and I couldn't really understand that. And, and then it was like, I am kind of boring. I need to, I need to, I, I, need, out. To, I need to get out and learn how to have fun in, in recovery. And I credit a lot of people with showing me how to have a good time staying sober. Because if I'm not having a good time, why would I want to stay sober? I have a blast in sobriety. But that is a debilitating feeling in the beginning. Oh. How am I going to function and lead any sort of social life without alcohol? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, that's... Drive me to the bridge now. Right, yeah, no doubt. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't say that to minimize that. I mean, that's actually a thought process that that we all know goes on, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was 23, got sober in Portsmouth, Ohio, and... uh, you know, just, I mean, when I hear people, you know, here say, oh, there's not many young people in recovery. It's like, yeah, talk to me about that. Right. (laughs) But actually at the time there was, there was a lot of young people in recovery down there. Uh, There was a bunch of us that got sober at the same time. And it it was really, really cool. It was uh, just what I needed at the time, a very formative time. But um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm employable today. I, I work in the addictions field, been doing that for about 18 years. And, um, you know, I was told, find something you like to do and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And I have found that now I've had jobs before to where it wasn't, that wasn't always the case. And I've got burned out and, and this and that, but it's, uh, I've been at the place I'm at now for, it'll be six years in November. And it's still, I get to, not that I have to, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't have to, it's a privilege to be able to do what I do and and to be on kind of in the trenches and, and to see the disease on a, a daily basis. And to, see, and to see people being so ill, they may not re- recognize how ill they are right. with the denial, self-deception, mm. delusions of normalcy. You know, with the, the delusional thinking, you know, in, in mental health, we have uh, delusions of grandeur mm-hmm. and, and we have persecutory delusions. And in addiction, we have delusions of normalcy mm-hmm. to where we think we can start using like a normal user. Right. Just a drink. Just, just one. It'll mm-hmm. be different this time. Yeah. And that's where I need to check the record. And check the data that I've written for myself. And long term, if I'm honest with myself, that's that's not the case, or I wouldn't be here today. I, I'd still be doing it. Yeah, you know. So yeah, it's um, it, it's really been a, a a blessing and a pleasure to be able to participate in life today, and um, you know, just just to be right where I need to be. You know, somewhere right in the middle, and um, you know, just just kind of doing my part. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Talking about Portsmouth, give us a little history because it was a hotbed for opiates and, and pill mills and, and things like that. So I'm sure that added to the difficulty of getting into recovery. But give us a little, just a brief history of Portsmouth and because there's the book Dreamland and which is pretty much focused around Portsmouth, Ohio. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Great read. And, and actually, Ed H., who I'd mentioned, was one of the main consultants for that book. Mm. And uh, the author said he never – Ed was a mentor of mine uh, personally and professionally for for many years. And, and he said that uh, – the author said he never met anybody with as much knowledge on the topic than Ed. And I could say I, I would probably second that. You know, If so, there's not many. You know, he, he certainly knows the stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was um, – so the first pill mill in the country was right across the river in South Shore, Kentucky. And um, 
there, there was a lot of pill mills, a lot of Oxycontin. I mean, it hit us. Like I said, I was on heroin in 97 and, and I switched from Oxycontin. And so I was doing that back then, uh, back before everybody else was. I was on the black tar heroin too. I, I did the white, the brown, and the, the black tar. Um, started the black tar about 97, 98. And we were going to Columbus. And actually another uh, connection with that was getting it from the people in the book that, that he's talking about. That's where we were getting a lot of the uh, black tar at that he talks in that book. And um, But the Oxycontin, so before the Oxy, the precursor to the Oxycontin was the MS cotton, the morphine sulfate. And, and before that, people were shooting Dilaudid. And before mm. that, people were doing Percocet, believe it or not, and then, um, you know, Demerol and all that. So I kind of, I stepped in right at the, right at the, the tail end of the, the tail end of the Dilaudid, probably the middle to end of the morphine, and then the beginning of the Oxycontin. So Oxycontin in 96 didn't spark the Portsmouth deal. It had been going on for how long prior to yeah, it, it the was Purdue go- thing? It was going on, but not as widespread. as When the Oxycontin came, that's when it went from not just everybody had morphine or Dilaudid. There had to be certain you know mm-hmm. conditions met. But when those came out at first with the cancer and then it started, you know, I mean, I'm exaggerating this, but you go to your dentist, you know, basically, and you could go and it started to be treated to treat back pain, which is subjective anyway. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and and then the pill mill started to pop up, and some really good doctors got caught up in that. That just kind of let greed, you know, take control. And then when when those got shut down, it just opened the gates for the heroin to come. But yeah, I mean, drugs ran, ran rampant down there and um, all over. And and the same thing it's doing everywhere else. It just right. we probably went through it before, so we kind of got to see what was what was on the forecast. It the storm hit us before it came here. And it was a big, healthy community. Did you say eighty thousand or fifty thousand? Uh, I think I believe back in the back in the industrial days, um, there was probably fifty, sixty thousand people in the city. Now, probably seventeen to nineteen. So it was like a city that probably um, probably was dying in the probably on life support in the seventies and, and died in the eighties wow. from the deindustrialization and mm-hmm. outsourcing and offshoring, uh, shoelace manufacturer and. Uh, you know, kind of like a, a, a blue collar community, a manufacturing city, some steel mills and whatnot, and that whole valley with Ironton as well. And uh, and then when those those jobs dried up and a lot of drug dealers from Detroit and uh, Columbus would come down and kind of post up down there. And, and so there's uh, the stuff they bring to the table as well with the um, with all that stuff. Yeah. You know, on to counseling where you are now, the Linder Center, you do dual diagnosis. I do. Yeah. Which is an underlying mental health disorder as well as substance use disorder. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. It, it's, it's, um, yeah, dual diagnosis co-occurring and, and that can be just like you said, it could be, I look at it as just two things occurring simultaneously. It's, I have an addiction and I also happen to have a generalized anxiety disorder or bipolar one or, you know, schizophreniform, whatever the case may be. But it's two primary conditions that I have that if I don't treat both of them at the same time, uh, there's a low ceiling to how well I'm going to get. I think you have a, I don't want to say unique, but a great opportunity to make an impact on those you work with because you've been on both sides of the fence. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you have a unique opportunity or a way to hit people better than some because of 
your experience? I, I think a lot of times people's uh, story can have depth and weight. And if it has depth and weight, it's got credibility and, and I, I respect the person. So then they could be telling me something similar to what somebody else is telling me. But I may judge the message on the messenger. And once I kind of tear down those walls and I start to look at the message, not so much the messenger, but for me, my disease and early sobriety, I'm dissecting everything. I'm looking for any reason why I don't relate to somebody. You know, it's kind of like with adult learning theory. You know, I've got these preconceived ideas in my head. And when I get to somewhere, I look for evidence only to support what I believe anyway. So if I think rehab won't work for me, when I get to rehab, all I'm going to look for is reasons why it won't work. Anything that contradicts that, I'm going to count as an anomaly. And, and that's just not being as open-minded, but yeah, I mean, from, from being an addict myself and going to rehab and all that, I would say that's pretty much a no brainer that, um, the people that got through to me, yes. I I mean, and I hate to say that because there's a, I don't want to like offend anybody. There's a lot of really good people that aren't, that mean well, and and some of them may be pretty good. Um, it, it was just different. You know, when I when I found somebody with both, there was yeah. there was no question about it for me from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to play the company card and say, well, it doesn't really matter and all this and that. Right. In reality, it did at one time yeah. for me. So another topic of separation that m- many people I feel are confused about is the belief that alcohol, alcoholism and drug addiction are separate from one another, mm. that I I had somebody actually say to me when I was going to coach them, a mother said, my son struggles with alcohol. I think what you're doing is great, but you know, he's an alcoholic and you are, you know, your experiences with drugs. And I just don't think it's going to mesh. Can you clear that up for our listeners that might want to know more about that? In terms of like the alcohol and drugs? Yeah. Just the the fact that it's, they're separate. Oh yeah. I mean, that's like, I mean, for me, that's like somebody saying, you know, I'm, I, I saw a post one time and it showed this guy in a, uh, a tie and his hair's messed up and he, he's looking all perplexed and it says, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. And then down in the bottom part of the, the photo, it shows a carrot and the carrot's sticking two thumbs out and it says, I'm a carrot and a vegetable. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's true. It's kind of one of those. It's like, it, it, for me, it's a, when I say addict, I mean alcoholic. Right. I mean, I'm looking for anything externally to change the way I feel internally. So for me, they're, they're one and the same, the same as one. And that's right. why I just don't, China White, Miller Lite, a drug is a drug is a drug when it comes to that. Right. Same part of the brain. And that, that goes for, and this is more of an education and awareness topic. Food, mm-hmm. which we talked about, food, shopping. I mean, you name it. It's the same part of the brain. People try and separate those things, and you just need to understand that it, there is no difference. Mm. It is just a substance, and it's going to the same spot. So yeah, I just wanted to clear that yeah. up. Because it's it, it's kind of like, if I could, when people like drug switch, um, it, it's kind of like I always tell people in group, you know, once you get the fire burning – it's irrelevant what kind of wood you put on it. Oh, kickery or, you know, it's going to burn. Yeah. It's the fire that needs to be addressed, not so much changing the wood. Because if I think of that, I'm going to think of certain drugs that are safe for me to do. And I'm going to do those for a little while until I either A, develop a problem with them and do what we call, you know, drug switch, or B, it's not fulfilling the, the dopamine needs in my head that really need to be uh to get me where I need to be at. And I'm going to get right back on my drug of choice. Right. So I used to, uh, 
I've said this before on the show, but when I was intervened for pretty much my drug of choice, which was cocaine, heavy cocaine use, I, the first event I went to, I would, I was rationalizing my, in my head prior to, and it was a, it happened to be a golf tournament and which people get crazy, but I was rationalizing to myself, okay, I'm not going to do any cocaine. I'm not going to smoke any weed, but you know, alcohol has nothing to do with this. Mm. I can drink. I mean, I'm rationalizing in my mind and I, I don't remember a second of that weekend and I wasn't really a blackout guy. And so I very quickly realized that I was an alcoholic and probably had been for a long time, but it just proved to me, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to find something to absolutely, you know, go overboard on. So it, it, it didn't matter. So it just pr it proved to me that I can't do any of that stuff. And because it'll just more, 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 as long as there's more, you know, we, we talk about therapy, but that's not an early recovery is not always enough for people. What are things that people could do to, I call it stack their recovery, mm -hmm. different things that they can do in addition to seeing someone. It's a very good, very good question. What, um, what I propose for a lot of people, if it, it depends, like if I'm coming out of a residential treatment center, um, Obviously, longer term, the better in most cases. Um, maybe an IOP. I can go to- Which an, is just and, for- I'm sorry. Yes. It's an intensive outpatient program. Mm -hmm. I coordinate ours up at the uh, Linder Center. So I've, I've been doing that for a while. But, um, you know, an intensive outpatient program, kind of like a step down. Instead of running the treadmill on a 10 and then hitting stop, maybe just backing off a little bit and walking it in for a little bit and just kind of stepping down levels of care and there's no time frame. I mean, this could last and there's a time frame for IOP, but then after that, maybe a continuing care. And then after the continuing care, I'm doing therapy simultaneously mm -hmm. with this. And I'm also maybe attending some uh, mutual support group meetings, whatever that looks like for the person, whether that's uh, celebrate recovery uh, in a uh, smart recovery, you know, whatever floats your boat on that. Um, people can do that as well. And, and the research says about three a week on those, but, um, to really stack the deck, the, the more, the merrier right. I could do. But as long as I'm doing something and my plan for recovery is I'm just not going to use. Right. Idle time is a killer. It's a We have to have structure. Mm -hmm. So I think having a purpose at, you know, getting a job, doing some kind of volunteer work, um, helps with self-esteem purpose, uh, structured time. We typically don't do well with a lot of gray area. That's when, that's when people in early recovery sit around and thinking about, they get very restless, irritable and discontent and they're crawling out of their skin. And, you know, they're, they're thinking of how can I change? And when people in early recovery are uncomfortable, I mean, let's be realistic. What do we normally think? What do we know etched in our brains that will take care of that right. in early recovery? Mm -hmm. There's the cravings are born right there. And so like, I, I think that, um, I think exercise is a, is a big thing that people can do. Um, you know, but but to can, you know, I'll do the company calling card of consult your physician first, yeah. and because I'm 41 yeah. now, and I I should probably do that. But um, you know, just doing some moderate exercise, whatever you you know you can do. And different people have different things that walking or whatever, but doing something physical. And I look at it as if it is mental, spiritual, and physical, and I'll put emotional in with mental as well. Why would my recovery program only address my spiritual? or my mental, or just my physical, it, to me, it just seems like I'm going to be off balance. So if the disease affects all that, why not address all that in my recovery program, my mental, my spiritual, and my physical? 
And I think exercise can, and it makes you feel good about oh, yourself too. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a loaded subject. So we briefly touch on it, but you work with adolescents. I do. And what are some of the unique challenges with that demographic today? Well, the peer pressure, the social media, mm. and and the very ill family. You know, apart with residential treatment, a lot of times what the benefits can be for adolescents or adults, more so with adolescents, but um, you pr- you can protect people from themselves. You can protect people from very ill family members that in their minds may be trying to help, but may be enabling a, a, an addiction. And then you can protect them from, you know, there can be very ill people in the recovery community. So it, it kind of gets people their legs under them a little bit before they step out and have to face this stuff on their own, so to say, till they can kind of figure out their brains healing up a bit. They can make better decisions, this and that. So with the adolescents, that desire to fit in mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the people they know are doing, I consult for children's hospital. Um, I also, uh, work in our adolescent program at, uh, at Linder for, um, on an outpatient diagnostic team. And I see people in my, I have a private practice there and I see, I see adolescents in that as well and family members uh, as well. And, um, not believing that their child could, and nowadays with the vaping, you know, with the vaping marijuana, I mean, they're sitting in school doing it and you don't, you can't even smell it. I mean, I missed the boat on all that. I got sober long before that stuff came out, you know, fortunately for Absolutely, me. Absolutely, fortunately. But it's it's definitely a, a problem, and um, it, it, makes it, it makes it difficult. I mean, as a general rule of thumb, adults may minimize their use, and adolescents may overstate their use. You know, they tell you an amount, you're thinking, I don't know, that's quite a bit. I mean, are you sure you're, you know, there, there might be, I don't know how you could do that, but maybe they are. But um, family members and one of the things, too, if they're living with family members that are using, there's the fear of the family members of CPS getting involved. You better be careful what you tell them. And when, when going to therapy or treatment and people are the most influential people in your life are telling you, be careful what you tell them. They want to take you away from us. I mean, in treatments about getting honest and putting the cards on the table, you're told by the most influential people in your life not to do it. Your role models are telling you not to do it because it's different and it doesn't matter, and they just want to take you from us. So that's an uphill battle in itself. And then, you know, the kids living with people that are using, you know, they have no choice in it. As an adult, I totally have a choice if I want to be around somebody that's using, whether that's a child, whether that's a spouse, I have a choice, and whether or not I, I want to be around them. As a kid growing up, I don't necessarily have that choice when my parents are doing it and I'm an adolescent in their home. Yeah. I'm kind of held hostage. And that's trauma. You know, a lot of us, a lot of us have some sort of traumatic catalyst event or long term of, of being in a situation like that that sends us down a, a path of what we consider healing mm. because we don't want to be in it anymore. So yeah, it is a shame. But the social media, you know, I have a daughter that's about to start middle school and it honestly scares the living daylights out of me because it that's an age where kids are mean to each other and social media and this is another thing I'm glad that we didn't have because I would have been in serious trouble. Oh yeah. And we had social media. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. that's access, man. Yeah. So yeah, um I, I'm sure that's gotta be a problem and you know, it, it causes, you know, the suicide rates are up and that's, that's a big demographic for that. And it's just, 
yeah, the the adolescence, I'm sure, is a a tricky one, but fulfilling, I'm sure, when it, you're able to break through. It is, and the part two, I can just touch on with the suicide and the adolescence. They're so impulsive. Adolescents are so impulsive. So, like, you know, like early recovery. I was very chronologically, I was 23. Emotionally, I was a 13, 14 year old kid because that's when I started using. Mm-hmm. And so I had developmental delays. The developmental delays, I never experienced the first breakup, the first rejection sober because I was always using. Mm-hmm. So when I got sober, I had to kind of learn how to do all that. And I was very impulsive. But as an adolescent, we're impulsive anyway. And so that's where the suicides, they can do something that you can never unring that bell that, that's getting ready to go. And that could be picking up again. That can be a suicide, that can be running away, that can be a variety of things, that can be cutting, that can be all kinds of posting something, that that can take many yes. different forms. And it doesn't have to be what we would consider major. It could be just being excluded from a party or you know a couple times, and it's just so detrimental to their fragile little minds. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it, that's a that's a tough one, but... I commend you for hitting, you know, adults and adolescents because that, it's such a need out there. Okay, man, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here. You are uh, an amazing dude, and uh, you've helped me more than I can say. And I know you help a lot of others. So, you know, keep it up, uh, Trevor. Thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to do this. I, I really appreciate it, and it's, uh, it, it's my pleasure. And any time, I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool and everybody's recovery to kind of see their own growth mm-hmm. and and to see you know the growth everybody makes you know where maybe they they start and then where they're at and that's just that's really cool to see and and I know you get the benefit of seeing that with a lot of people that you're around and and everything so no I, I want to thank you it's it's really a, a great opportunity and you're doing great work thanks for listening I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.